You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. As we've seen in our prior episodes, Latin Christianity, or Roman Catholicism, had firmly become the primary religion across Western and Northern Europe by the 8th century. Today, our events will take us into the 11th century, and we have a good opportunity to showcase the spread of Christianity and the development of the state throughout the rest of Europe. Henry the Fowler, or King Henry I, died in 936, and his son, who is known to history as Otto the Great, was elected king and firmly established the new Holy Roman Empire by uniting East Francia and Northern Italy, incorporating it into what became a confederation of various sub-kingdoms, principalities, and duchies. The Ottonian dynasty would defend the Papal States and give way to the Salian dynasty with the election of Conrad II in 1027. To the east of the Holy Roman Empire and to the north of the Byzantine Empire, new Christian kingdoms have emerged by the year 1000. The first Bulgarian Empire held a large territory north of the Balkan Peninsula, the Balkan Peninsula remaining part of the Byzantine Empire. Slavic peoples become the dominant group in the region north of Bulgaria and east of the Holy Roman Empire, including the Kingdom of Hungary, which established in the year 1000, the Kingdom of Poland, becoming a kingdom in 1025, and the expansive Kievan Rus, which is the genesis of the modern state of Russia. The leaders of all these territories had adopted Christianity, leaving only the clan-based societies in the Eastern Baltic as the remaining pagans in Europe. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. That was Matt Whitliff talking about the development of modern Europe. And we're going to be talking about the dates 935 to 1066 on this episode of the History of Modern Politics. If you are listening on the public feed, then you can jump ahead. You can listen ahead to future episodes now at thehistoryofmodernpolitics.com. You'll also get video. You'll get show notes. You'll get our reading lists. And the goal here is basically to give you an overview of the development of our modern politics and to give you resources to help you go and track down what interests you if you hear something. Like, I love this period, and I love the period that follows. Like, the next 500 years are my favorite period of, of English history. Uh, and there's many, many great books that I'll be recommending um, But the year is 1066, Matt, and the King of England, known as Edward the Confessor, has died, and there's no heir, and there's no succession plan. Like, if you love the the Game of Thrones, this period from 935 to basically the Tudors in the 1500s is going to interest you to no end. So history knows this year is the transition from the Anglo-Saxons to the Normans, and you kind of hear about 1066, but there are several competing claims for the throne, and it really depends on your source and historian, but the Normans may have had the strongest claim and should not be thought of as invaders, Matt. Yeah, and, and in this episode, we're going we're gonna to kind of do it a little bit backwards. We're starting here at the end of the episode in 1066, and we're going to try to bring all the various uh, pieces of the chessboard together for you to understand these multiple claimants of the throne, how all of the the foundation that we've been laying with uh, with the stories in the previous episodes as to like, you know, the dynastic marriages here and the development of France here and all that begin to come together to take us to the fateful day in 1066 yeah. when, um, and, and when what, the Normans invade. Yeah. And what people have to understand about the Normans is they're in France. 
All right, northern France. At one point, they occupy and rule Sicily, down by the boot in Italy. Uh, they are known as kind of the most violent of the of the districts of France, um, the most aggressive. And they have a claim to the the English Empire, and they invade basically and take it over. And the 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 switch from the Anglo Saxons to the Normans is so complete that you basically have a changing of the language of the island and basically yep. French is the the language of the ruling class and of the legal code until for hundreds of years so it yep. is a total it's like France basically took over England is is the way to translate it to the modern mind that that's right and um so you know when we get to uh the end of the events here in 1066 you know we're going to we're going to walk through four key players for claimants to the throne um, and, and, you know, build up the history as to how each of those got, each of those men were put into place to, to try to, you know, put their claim on the throne and, and succeed Edward, the confessor confessor. So the first player that we're going to look at is, is Edgar. He's probably the, maybe the least known of these, the Edgar known as the Athling, which kind of means like Prince or being of the Royal family. Um, he was just 14 years old at the time. Uh, and so to pick up Edgar's storyline, we're going to go back to King Ethelstan, the son of Edward the Elder, grandson of Alfred the Great. Ethelstan died in 939 and was succeeded by his younger brother, Edmund. Okay, so Edmund reigns for seven years and he's assassinated. And the throne is passed to yet another son of Edward. Right. Edward had so many kids, Chris. I, mean, I know. <laughs> so this one is named Edred. Okay. And now two sons of Edmund follow. The first is murdered. Uh, probably assassinated. The second bears further discussion um, in in just a moment. And this period is marked by generally younger kings. Some of these kings ascend to the throne as just teenagers. That leads to lots of political instability. Uh, the court advisors start to you know try to mingle and 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 you know have power and all that. And this period also is going to include increased battles again with our favorite people, the Vikings, the Danes, including a Danish king of Northumbria named Eric Bloodaxe, who is now in Scotland. So the next king to discuss is Ethelred. He is known as the Unready, but this is a poor translation of the Old English and should be closer to ill-advised. He had bad advisors. Um, he was probably about 12 years old when he became king in 978, and by nine, the 980s, Viking raids were beginning to pick up again. We just mentioned Eric Bloodaxe of Northumbria, which is the coolest name. Uh, we're going to take a brief detour to Scandinavia to explain what's going on and why are they invading, Matt? That's right. So much like the other Germanic tribes that we focused on, Norway is a conglomerate of petty kingdoms. And it's first unified under Harold Halfdanson, who is known as Harold Fairhair. And he's written about extensively in the various sagas. Um, so we, we actually quick you know, break. We didn't talk about sagas, in a, but most of the the history of the Scandinavians is written in these Icelandic sagas, the Norse sagas, and they're kind of true, maybe not completely true. So they're not a great in primary source, but when they're tied together with other sources of history, they become really the foundation of everything that we know about this period. So, anyways, wait a minute. He, there wasn't a, a dragon named Grendel. <laughs> what? what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Weird. So, so Harold Fairhair is extensively written about in the sagas, and he's confirmed through some other accounts. So, you know, his historicity is is very clean, and he becomes king in eight seventy two 
which is at the same time that Alfred was fighting off the Vikings in England and unifying England. After reigning for nearly 60 years, his oldest son, Eric Bloodaxe, briefly succeeds Harold before yielding his throne to his brother Hakon. And Eric, you know, goes on to take up raids in England, settles in Northumbria, and by 947, he's king of Northumbria. Uh, Hakon's battled and uh, killed in a battle by a coup led by Eric Bloodaxe's sons, uh, and Harold Greycoat succeeds Hakon as the king of Norway in 961. Now, however, this was now only as a vassal king to the more powerful king over in Denmark. Yeah, and Denmark has been similarly reunified into a single kingdom under Harold Bluetooth in 958 now bluetooth technology is named after this same king harold of harold bluetooth um do you know why what what was the was somebody yeah it's the notion of bringing things together bluetooth is able that technology is able to like unite two devices together just like harold bluetooth united uh the united denmark that's fascinating so harold bluetooth was the son of in fact real quick the the symbol that you see for bluetooth technology that that kind of weird symbol is our old norse uh runes uh, characters that you know mean bluetooth oh wow all right that's a cool fun fact yeah so he's the son of king gorm the old who himself is according to the legends the great grandson of ragnar lodbrok and Harold, and just real, just real quick. Ahead. Sorry, Ragnar Lodbrok, according to legends, is the son or the father of the four sons who formed the great heathen army that invaded England. Ah, see, it's people think of history in like singular events that have they're all everything's tied together, which is why when we started, let, let's start in the sixties. No, we need to go back to the progressive era, no, and then all the way you're way back in Roman times. <laughs> um, so. Harold Bluetooth invites Harold Greycoat, who happens to also be his nephew. Harold Bluetooth's sister is Gunhild, Eric Bloodaxe's wife, who is quite an interesting woman in her own right, but you'll have to Wikipedia that later, to Denmark and has him killed. So, uh, basically, Harold Greycoat is killed. Now, this is in 970, which takes place when Harold Bluetooth as king of both Denmark and Norway. So, this takes us back to our main story with the introduction of one of the coolest names in history, Matt... Swain Forkbeard. I love Swain Forkbeard. That's a great name. So, so Swain Forkbeard was born in Denmark in about 963, and he's the oldest son of Harold Bluetooth. So around 986, Swain leads a revolt against his father, Harold, and sources are limited, but it seems to be due to a combination of him not getting as much power from Harold, Harold overreaching in some of his military campaigns, his conversion to Christianity and some back and forth between Christianity and paganism and just the overall relationships with the nobles, nobles and and Swain is able to defeat uh, his father Harold and becomes king of Denmark and king of Norway in 986. Now, throughout the 1990s, Viking raids continue and Ethelred, now 36 years old, took extreme action, ordering the death of all Danes in England in 1002, which is really an extreme measure. And it's known as St. Bryce's Day Massacre. We don't know how many people died, but it is suspected that Swain Forkbeard's sister was among the executed, along with her Danish husband, who was an elderman of Devonshire. Swain responded by leading raids over the next decade and eventually forced Ethelred to abdicate the throne and fell into exile. Swain Forkbeard was now the king of Denmark, Norway, and England. However, he died just five weeks later in 1014. And Swain had two sons, Harold and Canute. 
and tried to be an adult when you look up the name Canute and its spelling. Harold would be installed as the king of Denmark, and Canute was to take England. However, the nobility backed Ethelred, and the English forces were enough to deter Canute. So he left to assemble a larger army back in Scandinavia. Ethelred returned through his sons, Edmund Ironside, who had a power base of his own, including support in the Danelaw. But Canute returned with a large force late in 1015. So when Ethelred died in April of 1016, Edmund was declared king in London, while Canute was named king by the nobility of the Danelaw. So Edmund eventually died, he was probably murdered, in November of 1016, which ended any disputes. Canute was now the king of England. But Edmund had two infant sons, Edmund and Edward, who Canute sent to be exiled with likely instructions to have them killed. The boys were secretly sent from Sweden to Hungary to protect them from Canute. They were later transferred to Kiev to keep them safe. Now, Edward survived into adulthood, returning to Hungary, marrying into an Eastern European nobility family, and had three children. The only son of Edward was Edgar Etheling, who was born in 1052 in exile in the kingdom of Hungary. That's right. So that that sets up our our Edgar Etheling, who uh, is is now off in the kingdom of Hen- uh, Hungary, uh, fourteen years before our events of ten sixty six. So now let's shift to the powerful House of Godwin, which uh, and and we'll explore in particular the oldest living male member of this family who has a claim to the throne. Harold, the Earl of Wessex. Now the Godwin family, the origins are kind of unknown we we don't really know how they rose to power um you know those are not names that we've said at in in any previous episode so far chris right Mm -hmm. and you know we can't go into all the theories but you know the easiest answer for our purposes is that the man we now will introduce as earl godwin emerges from lower society i mean not a peasant right but you know certainly not in the uh, the established uh, royal family or nobility. He emerges from lower society and becomes a, just a very powerful man. And he seems to be in the right place at the right time. He inherits land upon the death of one of Ethelred's children in the year 1014. And, two, and by 1018, two years after Canute took the throne, Godwin becomes Earl of the land that includes all of Wessex by, um, by 1020. So he becomes a close ally uh, of Canute. I think one thing we'll see as we go through this narrative, Earl Godwin was certainly a massive political player, you know, shifting his allegiance here and there, whichever the wind would blow the right way to, you know, bring him more power. And uh, he's able to rise through that process. So he aligns himself with Canute. Um, probably even accompanied him in travels to Denmark where Canute was going back to ensure that his, uh, the kingdom of Denmark was secure in his hands. And through all this, Godwin marries the sister of a Danish Earl who himself was married to a sister of Canute. So he, he links his family, not directly through blood, but you know, related through blood to, uh, to Canute. Yeah. So when Canute dies in 1035, um, we should hop back because we didn't mention this, but Canute had married Ethelred's wife, Emma, shortly after his conquest in 1017. Now we need to take a quick detour to tie a few storylines together here and introduce Emma. So back in France, we left our last episode with Rudolf dying as king of West Francia in 936. If you recall, Edward the Elder's daughter, Edgafu, was back in Wessex with her son, Louis, after her husband, Charles the Simple, had been deposed. With the crown open, Hugh of Paris, husband of Edward the Elder's daughter, Elhid, used his power and influence to back Louis from Wessex. 
So Louis becomes King Louis IV of West Francia, though Hugh, styled as the Duke of the Franks, was the real power. Hugh, known to history as Hugh the Great, never became king, but he put the pieces in place for his son, Hugh Capet, to become king of West Francia in 987, finally ending the Carolingian kings. So Hugh the Great also had a daughter named Emma. This Emma, known as Emma of Paris, married Richard, the Duke of Normandy, and grandson of Rollo, the Viking invader who received the fief of Normandy from Charles the Simple. Emma and Richard did not have any children, but Richard married again and had quite a few children, including a daughter known as Emma of Normandy, born in 984. This is the same Emma that married Ethelred and then Canute. Now, while we're here, let's talk about Emma's offspring. Emma and Ethelred had three children, Edward, Alfred, and Goda. Emma and Canute had two children, Hartha, Canute, and Gunhilda. So the point of confusing you with all of these many names is just to show you how incestuous the <laughs> all of these relationships are. And you can't just think of the Vikings as these outside invaders, outside yeah. invaders without any culture. They are deeply engaged in the English and Fran- and Frankish uh, nobility. That's right. And so with Canute's death... Martha Canute was considered to be the proper heir to the throne. However, he was back on campaign in, in Denmark. And so Canute's oldest son, Harold Harefoot, was the man on the scene. And, and while he was older, he was considered an illegitimate marriage because Canute's first marriage was not a Christian marriage. Uh, however, he was still given regency. So essentially the notion that the, the nobility of England was like, okay, you can rule on behalf of your uh, younger half brother, Hartha Canute. Uh, but you know, that didn't sit well with Harold Harefoot. He basically assumes the crown for himself. And so he, he reigns for only four and a half years before dying. And at this point, Hartha Canute, you know, fully takes the throne for himself. And through all this, guess who's moving and shifting his loyalties to gain even more political power? That's right. Our, it's our friend Earl Godwin, right? So first aligning with Harold and making nice with, and then later making nice with Hartha Canute. Um, through all this, the one person who saw through him <laughs> seems to be Emma, uh, a sharp politician, and the events on the ground force her to flee and go into exile in Flanders during most of the time of Harold's reign. Yes, Flanders being in the France area, uh, modern-day France. Hartha Canute did not live long either, dying just two years after becoming the king of England in 1042. You'll notice this is a theme. As much as we don't like our health care, trust me, you're, you're better off than a king of England until the 1900s. So once again, knowing the political scene, Earl Godwin supported Emma's son, Edward the Confessor, for the throne. Edward was from Emma's marriage with Ethelred and was nearly 40 years old at this time, and he had spent most of his life in exile, probably in Normandy, the most, if not all, of the time. So uh, as Earl Godwin continued to gain power and build a power base for his family from the beginning of the rise in 1016 until his death in 1053, by the time we hit 1066, the Godwin family held earldoms across the entire country. His eldest, oldest surviving son, Harold, inherited the lands of Wessex. The next oldest daughter, Edith, was strategically married to Edward the Confessor, though they had no children. Tostig, the next oldest son, was Earl of Northumbria, which put him into contact with Sting Scotland's King Macbeth of Shakespearean fame, and had and two more sons were Earls and East Anglia and Kent. So now we get to Harold Harada, who stakes his claim as an outsider invader. Now, Harada translates to what, Matt? 
best translated like hard ruler, a reputation that he gains, uh, you know, later on. But he he's born first as, um, uh, you know, Harold Sigurdsson. So, you know, if things would have turned out just a bit different, this guy probably would be known to history like on the scale of Julius Caesar. And we'll see why in a little bit. But this guy's story is incredible. We're only going to be able to give you the highlights. Um, there's actually a new book coming out about him in September of 2021 uh, that that looks like it's going to be pretty comprehensive. So so to set the stage with Harold, uh, we're going to have to go back over to Scandinavia and look at the time of uh, Swain Forkbeard. So if you recall, Swain, son of Harold Bluetooth, becomes king of Denmark and Norway in 986. We didn't discuss it earlier, but there's a brief period of time where Swain loses his rule over Norway for about five years between 995 and 1000. So during this time, the crown passes to one Olaf Tryggvason, uh, who's a, also a grandson of Harold Fairhair. And he was living in Ireland, of all places at the time, and recruited to come claim the throne away from Danish rule. Uh, again, this just shows how interconnected everything is that the guy who's going to become the king of Norway was actually in Ireland, right? right. And so he's recruited, and but is eventually killed in the Battle of Svolder in the year 1000. When Swain Forkbeard puts together some allies, uh, Eric Hawkinson and Olaf the Swede, and they go and merge victorious in this battle. So now Olaf the Swede is the son of the first confirmed, truly historical, uh, unified king of Sweden, who's known as Eric the Victorious. Uh, king Eric battles with Swain Forkbeard previously, but after Eric dies in 995, uh, his son Olaf becomes king and Swain seems to have married Eric's wife, making Swain stepfather to the king of Sweden. So again, <laughs> we're, we're starting to connect all these places together and a few more names to put forth. Uh, there are a few names that, you know, we, we haven't exactly found who this mystery woman is. There's, there's multiple names. There's a chance it might've been actually two wives instead of just one. Um, but one is known as Sigrid the Haughty. Her story is pretty crazy. There's also uh, the chance that it's a Polish princess, again, connecting to uh, the neighbors to the east of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and to add even more fun to the story, some say that it was Olaf Tryggvason, uh, that king of Norway, attempted to marry Sigrid and was rebuffed. And that might have been you know, what contributed to the lead up to the Battle of Svolder. So. Uh, Go ahead. Keep going. No, go ahead. No. So Sigurd is also said to have been pursued by a man named Harold Grensky, another grandson of Harold Fairhair, who's already married to Asta Gransbader, who was his child. So it, it gets very uh, crazy. So Sigurd allegedly declined and had him killed. Asta gave birth to her son named Olaf, remarried Sigurd, yet another descendant of Harold the Fairhair, and had a son named Harold. And this is our Harold Sigurdsson. So now, by the time of Harold's birth in 1015, Olaf, Harold's older brother, gained support of the Norwegian nobility and declared was declared king as the successor to Swain Forkbeard. However, King Canute of Denmark and England eventually came back to take his father's throne. So Olaf, known as St. Olaf or King Olaf II, was defeated in 1028 and died in 1030 in a battle trying to regain his throne. Harold went into exile at the age of 15 to spend time in the Kievian Rus, he went on to serve the Byzantine Empire, fought in the Holy Land and, and in Sicily, and will be eventually return to Kiev where he mar married the daughter of Yaroslav the Wise. Oh, and you know who else might have married the daughter of Yaroslav the Wise around the same time? That's right. Edward the Exile, son of Edmund Ironside and the father to Edgar Etheling. Now, a couple of Yaroslav's da other daughters were remarried to King Henry 
first of France, the grandson of King Hugh Capet, and the future king of Andrew of Hungary. Now, all right, uh, let's jump back to Canute. All right, let's tie it's, tie all this together because I think we're getting people a little, well, um, yeah, no, it, it's overwhelmed again, with names. I'm sure. Key thing here, lots of names, but it, it's there's this web of connections all over the place. So, so Canute dies in 1035. The throne of Norway now goes to Magnus, who's the son of Olaf II. Now, Hartha Canute is king of Denmark, not yet king of England, because Harold Harefoot is at the moment, presses to take back his father's throne. And ultimately, Magnus and Hartha Canute make a peace agreement. They decide to stop fighting with each other and decide to rule separately. And when one of them dies, the other is going to inherit the other's land. Okay. And so this peace agreement is, is put in place. And now in 1042, Hartha Canute now king of england uh you know successfully claims the danish throne over a rival and then ultimately uh you know this is the basis by which the the uh claim is put forward now magnus takes the claim because hartha canute is dead uh but ultimately he decides not to press further and to, to, to invade england which you know this is now the period where edward the confessor actually becomes king now, Harold began his return from the East in 1045, arriving to join or perhaps usurp his powerful nephew. Now, Magnus dies in 1047, leaving Harold to rule Norway while granting Denmark back to his former rival. Harold sought to unite Denmark with Norway again under his control, but was not successful and ultimately agreed to peace with Denmark. So when Edward the Confessor dies in 1066, Harold used this moment to view himself as the heir to England based on the agreement between Magnus and Hartha Canute. So he found allies in the north in the king of Scotland, Malcolm III, and embittered Tosta Godwinson, who ruled the north of England and was feuding with his brother, Harold. So that brings us finally to the Beast of Normandy, William. Uh, William of Normandy is, what, what is his lineage? Yeah, so if you remember Rollo, uh, he was pacified by receiving Normandy as a grant from Charles the Simple in 911. And this is one factor that led to the end of the Carolingians and the emergence of the House of Capet, right? And so now we've already met Rollo's grandson briefly, Richard, who strengthened his ties with the House of Capet and sent his daughter to England to marry Ethelred. That's, that's Emma. And if you recall, she married Canute after Ethelred died. Now, Her Richard had several other children, but we'll only focus on his oldest son, unfortunately, also named Richard. <laughs> yeah. uh, and despite not being a king himself, just to keep things straight, he's referred to Richard as Richard II of Normandy. And Richard II ruled Normandy from 996 through 1026 and played alliances between Ethelred and Swain Forkbeard and Canute all through this time, alternating between giving the Danes territory from which they could launch their raids into England uh, as well as then supporting England because, you know, his sister is the queen after all. Uh, and so Richard's oldest son, also another Richard, dies only after two years as Duke. And then Normandy passes to the brother Robert. Now, you might remember that uh, you might already know that Robert's oldest son, William, was born uh, illegitimate to one of Robert's mistresses. And so when Robert dies on a pilgrimage going to Jerusalem to pay for his sins of having illegitimate children, perhaps <laughs> um, young William the bastard is given Normandy. And so his uncle, yet another son of Richard II, attempts to seize power, 
But the Archbishop of Rouen, who's very powerful, and guess what? Also a brother of Richard II. And King Henry the Fran- Henry I of France, who we briefly talked about earlier, both support young William's claim to Normandy, even though he's only seven years old. And over the next 30 years, this guy expands his power, fights off rebels, and works to continue to build new alliances. Even the king turns against him. Uh, but, you know, because of William's increasing power, but that doesn't shake William from his firm grip on Normandy. Now, no one knows what actually happened, but William attested that Edward had named him to be his heir to the throne. And this may have happened as early as 1051, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle places William in England. The Godwins also spent time in Normandy during their exile around this time, may have given their support to William's claim as heir during this time, and, you know, before they solidified their own position as controlling near all of England. So, now that we have all the pieces of the puzzle, what actually happened? Edward, right. the, Edward the Confessor dies on January 5th, 1066. What happens next? So, the Witan selects Harold Godwinson, who's, you know, again, the man on the scene, which becomes an important piece of this. Uh, and he is subsequently crowned the immediate next day on January 6th. Now, we've not really talked about the Witan, so let's just briefly detour Chris to talk about what the Witan is. And this is a predecessor of other institutions that become late, that come later. So the Witan is this concept of the leading nobles, the leading barons uh, of the court, uh, of the territory. So the eldermen's, if you recall, might gather together. And this is also in, we talked about the Last Kingdom uh, TV series in, in the last episode. They, they you know, bring this notion of the Witan up several times, right? And so it's the, the court advisors, uh, the, the leading men of the country, and they are sort of notionally empowered with selecting the next king. Right now, most of the time it becomes hereditary rule, um, but it's at least rubber stamped by the Witan. And ultimately, the Witan is going to emerge to become what we think of as parliament today. And we'll get to that in, in a few more episodes here. But I, I think, I think we I think we've been spoiled with the notion of, you know, the absolute rulers of, uh, you know, like Hitler and Stalin and, and some of the early 20th century stuff. But there isn't. Even they and every king always had a boss, you know, and like we'll see that in the Magna Carta episode where the 25 barons really start putting pressure on King John because of the abuses of the Plantagenet household dynasty. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Witan at the time is, you know, you you are a ruler, but you have to rule within the what the other power brokers think. Right. That's right. Otherwise, you're not going to last very long. So. Between January and, and, you know, over the next several months, the, the various players uh, start to put their power bases together. So, in particular, Harold Hadrada, King of Norway, uh, starts to assemble his forces, and William of Normandy begins to assemble his forces. And by September 8th now, so we're, we're talking eight months later uh, of, you know, pulling together provisions and armies and ships and supplies and all this. Harold Adrada, along with his ally, Tostwig, Tostig Godwinson, and the troops of the Scottish king, Malcolm III, have assembled in Northumbria, and they are ready to head south. Yeah, and then four days later, William of Normandy, which is in modern-day France, had finalized his preparations and set sail across the English Channel. Now, poor weather threw the ships off course, and they were forced to change plans. And King Harold's forces, who are mostly in the south, ready for William, decided to turn north to meet the threat from Harada. So you've got King Harold, let's say, in the London area, and he's preparing for William. They don't show up. 
He literally just said, well, I guess they're not coming, turns to start marching north to fight the Harada forces. Now, they met the English forces in the Battle of Stamford Bridge on September 25th, where both Harada and Tostig were killed. So that essentially decapitates that threat. So King Harold's forces now moved south, again expecting to meet the Norman invaders. So on October 14th, the Battle of Hastings. So remember, we're more than a month after when this all started getting mobilized. The famous Battle of Hastings takes place, which resulted in a victory by William and the death of King Harold. Now, the next day, Edgar Etheling was proclaimed king by the Witan because they don't want the Normans in charge. And you'll find out why next episode. William began to make his way to London to take the throne for himself, fending off skirmishes and take a longer route to Westminster. He finally arrived in December, December in England. The nobles quickly decided to abandon Edgar and pledge fealty to William, persuading young Edgar to do the same. William, let's talk about why. William was a psycho. Uh, and there's a, a great book. Ed West has a great series, a brief history of England that I highly recommend. And he has a whole book on 1066 and William. This man was one of the most violent people I have ever read about. He was terrifying. He was he was short, <laughs> but violent. And, you know, it's not surprising to me that the Witan immediately goes, hey, Edgar, you're out, because you don't have the same force. He had a lot of force. So he's officially crowned on December 25th, 1066. And, and remember also, I mean, Edgar is 14, maybe 15 years old at this time. He, he yeah. doesn't and has lived almost his entire life in in exile. And this is a common theme throughout a lot of these histories is that you have a young ruler who's in their teens and the the more violent elder army comes and, and takes it over and you have a flip, which is what kind of what makes the post-King John Magna Carta period interesting is that William Marshall saves the country and preserves the nobility, um, which was made up of nobles over the last, uh, of Norman nobles over the last 200 years. So now Edgar, normally you'd, you'd end up dead. If you were Edgar, uh, you're yeah. you have a claim to the throne. You've you've bounced out of England. You're going between Norman, Scotland, in exile, out of exile. Sometimes a rebel, sometimes subdued. But he lives a surprisingly long life, and his death is unknown. But some evidence exists that he may well have lived past 1125 or even into 1158 or 1167, which would place him over a hundred years old, which is just extraordinary for the time, Matt. That's right, especially for someone who is in and out of like potentially fighting battles and, and conflicting yeah. with kings and dangerous kings, that is. And so, uh, you know, the, there's just evidence of some, um, you know, uh, code books of, of like tax returns and things like that in, in the north of uh, England, you know, like we said, well late into the mid 12th century that that have names that may well be him it could have been a son right but it, it's still interesting nonetheless but there is um definitely evidence that he was alive still in, in 1125 which still puts him at a pretty long life so william completely changes england from anglo-sac i mean it is a stark violent change with at one point the raising of the north over a hundred thousand people die um, by some estimates. So we're going to talk a lot about what changes in England and how um, how he handles this flip and why it is so important to the future. So this was like, you know, Matt, back in the days when you'd watch The Sopranos from week to week, there'd be like the setup episode for 
for next week, that's kind of where we're at. But this is the Battle of Hastings. It's it's an incalculable change. And it was a, a very tense moment because, like you said, if Harold Harada had won, then you would have Scotland ruling over England and yep. the Danes and, and basically the Vikings ruling over England and, and the continuation you had. For, King- for ho- who knows how long, right? Yeah. I mean, Hadrada had tons of military experience and... Um, you know, Harold's forces were uh, King Harold Godwinson's forces were were strong, and if if William of Normandy's um, if the weather would have cooperated with his original plans, yeah, he 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 would have met a much stronger force of 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 King Godwinson, uh, King Harold Godwinson, uh, in the south, and and maybe would have been defeated. In which yeah. case, uh, you know, the the English army might have been then at that point weakened. Uh, and Hadrada and the Scots and Tostig Godwinson might have uh, emerged victorious. But, um, you know, little things like that in history, you never know. And, um, you know, that's that's what makes it partly interesting. Yeah, I mean, if Caesar hadn't, in, uh, crossing the channel, been hit with uh, the storms, he would have taken it, and it wouldn't have been less Same up to storms. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right? 100 years later is when the Romans took over. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many little things that just completely change the course of history that uh you know god and his weather play a role so that's right so so again the, as as i think we mentioned in an episode or two again right the the kind of mid mid season 1 of this this podcast uh, high point is going to be the magna carta chris just talked about why that is so important we we now almost have all the the pieces of the puzzle in place to to get us to the story of the magna carta so we'll we'll get to that probably in about three episodes from now, um, there's a little bit more setup to get through the Norman period and William the Conqueror, and then the next dynasty that takes place um, after that. But by that point, we are we're going to be squarely at the uh, the high point of kind of that first first um, uh, moment of liberty, if you will, in in the history of Britain. Yeah, so far not a lot of liberty happening here, um, especially under William. So. With that, we leave you. We thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. That is the best way to support the podcast and to help us grow. And be sure to visit the History of Modern Politics to get all of our show show notes, our total outline. Uh, Sign up for the email, our reading list, video. All of that is available when you join History of Modern Politics Plus. And that is available also to members of We Are Libertarians Plus. So please make sure that you uh, subscribe. So with that, we leave you and we will see you in two weeks.